we're glad you're here today. Kevin decided to start out his research with Google, and though I didn't start out, I did go to Google at one point. I did recognize several of the phrases or, or quotes that you mentioned. I have a few this morning for you as well as we talk about, I still do. One person said, all marriages are happy. It's the living together afterward that causes all the trouble. One lady said, I love being married. It's so great to find that one special person you want to annoy for the rest of your life. Another person said, marriage is an attempt to solve problems together, which you didn't even have when you were on your own. <laughs> you think getting married is going to solve all your problems? No, it just gives you some new ones to deal with. We all know that. And then I found this one that's not so much funny, but is perhaps more true as we enter our subject today. It says, more marriages might survive if the partners realize that sometimes the better comes after the worse. More marriages might survive if the partners realize that the better comes after the worse. While it may be said that the family is the first church, it's been said before, the first relationship created after man and God, that relationship that was established, was the relationship between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. And I would like to state unequivocally from the start that outside of God, there is no more important relationship in your life than the one that you have with your spouse. Now, bear with me if you are not married for just a few moments. We'll get back to you and you can rejoin the crowd or you can listen for future advice. But there is no more important relationship in your life than the one that you have with your spouse. I truly believe that. I don't care if you have small kids, teenagers, grandkids, whatever the case may be, the person that you committed to love and cherish should be the most important person in your life. I will mention that my wife walked out right before I got up here to preach, so <laughs> kids are sick, she doesn't care about supporting me. <laughs> but before I had kids, I had a wife. That's not true for everybody, but in my circumstance, before I had kids, I had a wife. And in fact, whether it's right or wrong, perhaps their therapist will explain it to them later in life, who knows. But I don't tell them on a daily basis, but every so often I let my, the, our boys know that their mom is the most important thing to me. They're not. <laughs> Again, their therapist can deal with that later. <laughs> Doesn't mean they're not important to me, but the most important person in my life is my wife. Because I want them to grow up someday and I want them to love their wife with everything. And, and, and as I, 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 this morning, I'll just warn you, I'm going to wade into some waters a little deep and then maybe uh, we'll come back out of them. But it, it bothers me. You see, I don't have a problem with the world and marriage. I don't have a problem with how the world treats marriage. I'm disappointed by the fact of how the world treats marriage, but I'm not shocked and I'm not surprised by it. In fact, statistics show that divorce rates are declining amongst the general population. But on the other hand, people that no longer believe in marriage is rising. It's not just that people are, are uh, quitting on their marriages. It seems the trend is now that marriage is something that's old-fashioned and outdated. And we're not going to get divorced because we're not even going to marry. That doesn't shock me because it doesn't shock me what the world does. Because I know the world is headed farther and farther away from God. 
It would shock me if the world turned towards God. Scripture tells me that the world is heading towards, uh, uh, heading away from God. And so it doesn't surprise me when they take what God has instituted, when they take what God has said, this is how it should be, and decide to go against that. That's what the world and the enemy will always do. However, it does bother me when that begins to take place within the church. It does bother me that when in the church there seems to become an ambivalent or a carefree attitude towards marriage and towards what marriage represents. You see, the enemy is very concerned about your marriage. We know the story of Cain and Abel and how the enemy destroyed that family. But before he ever tried to destroy that family, he destroyed that marriage first of all. He was very concerned about Adam and Eve. He was very concerned about their relationship with one another and their relationship with God. And Scripture tells me that, that my marriage represents something, whether I like it or not. Scripture tells us very plainly that marriage is a representation of Christ and the church, which is the greatest bond that has ever been formed in human history, is the bond between Christ and the church. And my marriage is a representation of that bond. And that challenges me because what does my marriage look like in light of that? We heard this morning how uh, putting I inside 1 Corinthians 13 changes our, uh, might change our view of whether we truly love or not. And when I place my marriage in light of how Christ loved me, that changes my view of marriage as well. Because my marriage is supposed to reflect that most divine of relationships. And I will say this as well from the start, that we do not make general rules based upon outlying exceptions. If you don't understand what that means, just think about gun control and what you think about it. Just because there's some mass shooting does not... For most people, uh, I would say that are are of a conservative stance, they don't believe that everything should just be regulated because of one outlier. And so when we begin to talk about marriage, I want you to keep that in mind, that we do not make general rules based upon outlying exceptions and hypotheticals of what might be or what could happen. No, Scripture gives us very clear definitions of what the general rules are. I want to make clear that wives, there's a direct line of submission. There is a direct line of authority and there is a direct line of protection that God has placed in our lives. And it goes Christ, our husbands, and then us. And when it becomes out of order, let me just say it will affect your relationship with God. I told you I was going to wade in deep and we ain't even in, we're still in the shallow end. Hold on. I might need some more water today. Should have taken that second pill. When you get out of line of submission, and I'm not talking about equality of men and women, but there's a line of submission, authority, and protection. And when you step out of that, you cannot still maintain your relationship with God the way that it needs to be. Because you're out of His protection and submission and authority. If I just want to say it plain, you can't be unsubmitted to your husband and submitted to God. Husbands, you fall under that same line. And when you start abusing your authority, then it affects your relationship with God. That woman is not there to treat like your slave. It's not there just to treat like they're, they, they you know, well anyway, I won't get too deep into that. But it's, they're not there just to do your bidding and whatever you want. When you start abusing your authority, you step out of the line of God's protection. You can't treat your, your wife like dirt and then expect God to answer your prayers. Mm. Peter warns us as husbands to remember that you and your wife 
are joint heirs, and we talked about this on Wednesday night. If for nothing else, just, just remember this fact. You're married to your brother or sister. Now that'll shock you there. We're all part of the family of God, aren't we? That woman sitting next to you is your wife and your sister. And just like we know that God protects his kids, don't forget that when it's your spouse too. Don't forget that. But Peter warns us as, as husbands to remember that you and your wife are joint heirs and God is not real pleased when you mess with one of his kids even though it may happen to be your spouse as well. Matthew chapter 19 verses 4 through 6 give us some words that Jesus says about marriage. It says, And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave a father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. That's a weird phrase. Wherefore there are no more twain, there it is again, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. Now while we as Christians can get all holy and rally around verse 4, that God has made them male and female, which let me say, I believe that He has. I believe that God created males as males and females as females. And I was reminded of this fact the other day when I read uh, some person that described themselves, and I can't even think of the word and didn't even take the time to look it up, it's so ignorant, but described themselves as a werewolf and the, the technical term there is for that. And do you know on Facebook there are 58 designations that you can call yourself, <laughs> even if you believe you're part werewolf. But I don't believe today that, that, that there should be this switching of I was born a male but I feel this way or I was born a female but I feel this way. I'm not, I don't believe as a Christian that God does that. I don't believe that that's our prerogative to just say well I feel this way so I'm going to change what God has created. Amen? And I know that that gets a little complicated in there and we're experiencing that as the day gets worse and worse. But I believe if you were born one way, that's the way that God intended for you to be born. And we're not going to mess with God's creative order. And so while I can rally around the fact that men and women are created that way, it's interesting to note that he uses this verse in relation to marriage as well. And he says, for this cause, uh, a man and a woman are going to leave their father and mother, and they're going to become one flesh. And if you've been to a wedding that Brother Gene has performed, you may have heard the fact, and he may, he may have made the statement that what is happening here today, that when this man and woman leave, they are now something new, something that has not existed before. God is creating something. When I marry someone, God is making a... It's not just a civil ceremony. It's not just something where my friends and family have gathered together. But there's a spiritual union that's taking place that I cannot create, that only God can create. He takes two entities and creates something new that is now one. And I want to challenge you this morning that there's... First of all, there's not two people anymore, but they are one flesh now. <laughs> so let me, t let me ask you something. If I'm, so, if I'm so convinced that a man should stay a man and a woman should stay a woman and I should not upset God's creative order, why am I alright uh, messing with something else that God created, which is a holy union in marriage? When I begin to mess with God, with what God has created, there's an issue there because God created it and not man. And it bothers me within the church in general that, that it feels like marriage is not something sacred. 
That it's not something holy anymore, but it is something that God has created Himself in that moment. And I can't begin to mess with that. I can't begin to say, you know what, well they shouldn't do that and they shouldn't do this. While my own marriage sits in ruins and that's just as much something that God has created. And there's a warning attached to this when Jesus says this. He says, what God has now made one, do not try to separate it. That's what the twain means, and asunder, those words that aren't quite recognizable. He says, don't try and pull apart what God has put together. You see, because you are not now separating some man-made creation, but you are trying to step into something that God created and trying to change it. Hmm. And I can't get all upset about some people doing stuff and then look at my own life and I'm doing the same thing just because it's in a different context. In fact, the warning is given that no man, not speaking just of the male species, but any person should not try to pull apart what God has created. That means my family should not try to step in and pull that apart. That means if there's kids already in the marriage, my kids should not be pulling it apart. That means the spouses themselves should not begin to pull apart what God has created. No man. Let no man touch what God has made holy and try to separate that. Because you see, when I'm trying to, when I begin to do that, I'm now stepping into God's creative order, trying to pull that apart. And you know what that does when Jesus says that? You know, I find this myself. When I read Jesus' words sometimes, I, I find myself right in the crowd. It made him mad. Sometimes I don't like what God has to say, it makes me a little upset. Because you know what I say? So you're saying then. And I start pulling out the hypotheticals and the what-ifs. Remember what I said, we don't make general rules based on the exceptions. And I understand there's circumstances and things, but Jesus set this forth. And it makes the crowd mad, so they ask Moses. Uh, they ask him about Moses, they're trying to trap Jesus. And, and why did Moses say it was fine to divorce? And in fact, it's pretty interesting when you look at it, because that is given. And there was two Hebrew schools of thought about how, why you could divorce. There was one school of thought that said, you know what, adultery and uncleanness are the only things that you can divorce for. And there was another school of thought, which I think is pretty prevalent today, that said, you know what, you can divorce for just about anything. In fact, it's written in the Hebrew manuscripts, if your wife burns your dinner, gets you a bill of divorce right now. Man, first meal. No. (laughs) She's not here to defend herself. Now, the first meal was not burnt. It was not burnt. She just mixed the mashed potatoes with the beaters in the pot that she cooked the potatoes. And as I was eating the mashed potatoes, I finally said, this looks like really big pepper in here, and realized it was the Teflon from the pot. (laughs) So they said, you know what? In fact, if she oversalts your food, that's the reason for divorce. In fact, it's written in the manuscripts, If you see a woman that you think is more beautiful, you can divorce her. And these are the two schools of thought that stand before Jesus. The two uh, uh, interpretations of the law. Only in extreme cases and pretty much just whenever you want. And they ask Jesus, well then why did Moses say this? And it just gets worse. Jesus' words just get worse. Matthew 19, 7 and 8, they say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, suffered you to put away your wives 
from the beginning, but it was not so. But from the beginning, it was not so. We find that Jesus responds with the fact in the following verses that the only reason he states there was an allowance made at all for a divorce was adultery. And he says, in fact, every other reason, and I don't like these words, but he says every other reason is because you have a heart issue. That's tough words to swallow. The reason my marriage is breaking apart is nobody else's fault but my own, is what he says. He says it's your heart. You see, in this day and age, divorce is no longer a scary word. Divorce is no longer a, 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 a taboo word. It's something that we hear every day. And in fact, there, there's very few people we would be surprised about if they got a divorce because it's so prevalent today. But when that idea of divorce begins to enter into my thinking as somebody that's married, when those thoughts begin to enter my mind because, you know what, tough times will enter into a marriage. There'll be rough moments in a marriage. And it's in those moments that all of a sudden the enemy sees his opportunity to destroy the greatest relationship that God put together. And you know what, all of a sudden, because it's no longer scary, it's no longer out of the ordinary, all of a sudden these words begin to enter. And Jesus says, there's something that I need to do when I begin to think that way. He said, you better check your own heart and how hard your heart has become. You see, divorce states that it's somebody else's fault, not mine. Jesus said, check yourself. The phrase hardness of heart is used throughout Scripture, old and new. And it simply represents this throughout all of Scripture. A hard heart represents pride, power, stubbornness, hard-headedness. And Jesus says, the reason you all are just wanting to get divorces is because of your own pride. You've got power issues and control issues. You're stubborn and hard-headed. And he never even mentions the spouse. It's always my spouse that's stubborn and hard-headed. I'm always flexible and easygoing. You know, that's a lie. But let me remind you that in the garden, everything that was tore apart when the enemy entered and, and entered into that relationship, everything that was involved in that, uh, Adam, Eve, the serpent, everyone involved, everybody was punished in that circumstance. In Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 through 16, we're going to come out of this in just a minute says, And this have ye done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with crying out. Sounds like they're pretty spiritual. They're calling out to the Lord. Insomuch that he regardeth not the offering anymore, or receiveth it with good will at your hand. He's telling him, you go before the altar, you come to church, you lift your hands, you cry, you worship, you do all this stuff. And he says, God is not regarding what you bring anymore. And the people say, why? Wherefore? Why is this happening? And the prophet answers, Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and thy wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet is she thy companion and thy wife of thy covenant. And did not he make one? Did he not make one? Yet had he the residue of the Spirit, and wherefore one? That he might seek a godly seed. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. For one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit that you deal not treacherously. He's saying you come to church and you think you're spiritual, you're holy, you're doing right, you're doing good, and God doesn't hear a word of what you're saying. Why? Because you have destroyed your marriage. You have destroyed your marriage. And I would just say as well, there's people that are still married and your marriage is destroyed. 
And he says, you know what, God is not, he's not pleased with that. That you can come and you can lift your hands, that you can worship, and there's discord within your own household like that. And he's, he makes the statement again, just as Jesus does. He doesn't say, look elsewhere. He says, uh, you need to take heed to who? Your spirit. You see, when I begin to let those thoughts come into my mind, when I begin to entertain those things like that, the issue is my heart and my spirit. And I need to begin to check because that is not of God. He says he hates putting away, which is divorce. He hates it. And when those things begin to enter my mind, let me just clarify for you, that is the enemy of your soul who is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy from your life. That is not of God. And I need to find an altar, and I need to check my spirit, and I need to check my heart. He tells them, because of how your marriages are being lived out, I'm not going to acknowledge your tears anymore. I'm not going to acknowledge your weeping. He would negate the tears on the altar because of their daily life in marriage. And the warning is given twice, check your spirit. Check what's guiding you. Check what's controlling you. Check what is directing your actions because the implication is whatever's leading you down that path, it is most definitely not God. I believe that God is calling us to say, I still, I do. I still do. Let me just say, I'm thankful for the blood of Jesus Christ. And let me just say, what I'm saying right now does not involve our past. I'm speaking to our present and to our future. Because I cannot control your past. I cannot control what has happened in your past life. You know what happens? The blood of Jesus covers my past. Let me just say that. The blood of Jesus covers every sin. It covers all my past. And I know there's people in here that have different things in your life, in your past. I'm thankful for the blood of Jesus Christ. That it reaches all the way down. It reaches all the way up. I'm thankful for the blood of Jesus. That I can put things under the blood. But I am here to challenge you today from this moment forward. What does my marriage look like? What does my relationship look like? I believe that God wants to show us that maybe some of our issues have nothing to do with God. Nothing to do with our brother, our sister. But perhaps with the person that we are now supposed to be one flesh with. And I'm going to get off this in just a minute, but I want to read one more verse. Matthew chapter 5, 23 and 24. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, Leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother and then come and offer thy gift. You see, I understand what that verse means. That means if, if, I, understand, if I understand it right, it kind of goes two ways. That Andy's got an issue with me. Before I come and, and offer to the Lord, I need to come find Andy and make it right. Or of course, if I've got something with Andy, which I do, but we're going to talk about that later. I need to find him before I find an altar. We're good with that. My brother, my sister, I need to find them. I need to make it right. Let me ask you, what if the brother or sister is your spouse? Still your brother or sister. I wonder what would happen in our marriages if this verse applied to my marriage. Before I come in and plaster my smile on and say, Oh, it's wonderful, it's great, and cry a few tears at the altar. And the whole time, there's ought. With the person sitting right next to me. Oh, I'm good with everybody else. That thing, I, I, it's all good now. But what would happen if suddenly I realized that my spiritual relationship with God has a lot to do with my marital relationship. And I can't serve God the way I need to when my marriage is not right. 
I'm calling for a recommitment to God's creative order. That there needs to be a recommitment of marriages in this place. Saying, I still do. You know what? There may be tough times. There may be rough times. But you know what? I'm going to recommit. I'm going to check my own spirit. I'm going to check my own heart. And I'm going to recommit to what God has created. One flesh. And I'm not going to be the reason that this is pulled asunder. In the words of Jesus in Matthew, we find that very word I just said, asunder. Which simply means to separate or pull apart from. And is used primarily throughout Scripture in speaking of marriage and divorce. We find it used in reference to another marriage ceremony that Scripture refers to. In case you didn't know this, I've been married before. Amanda's not my first marriage. I was married spiritually before you get really freaked out. Just in case you get really worried. I would like to say I appreciate my wife even though she's not here. And just as, 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 as bad as you think I am now, she knew me before any of you did. And I was really bad then. I was, yeah, there, there was a lot that had to happen there. <laughs> we'll leave it there. She's gone. She can tell you the long story later. But there's another marriage ceremony that we find in Scripture. And in fact, we find this word used by the Apostle Paul, this word asunder, that's translated asunder, as he writes to the Roman church about a revelation he has received. And I believe that we need to receive a revelation within our marriages physically, but I believe there's another revelation that you and I need to receive this morning. Romans chapter 8, verse 35, and then 38 and 39. He received this revelation, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's some powerful verses right there. You see, Paul is persuaded about the strength and the enduring nature of the love of Christ. You see, these verses speak of love in two ways, I believe. And the first is God's love towards me. How great is that love towards me? I believe that Paul has received a revelation of how much and how extensive God's love is and how unshakable that love is. And I believe there's somebody here today that needs to get a revelation, a fresh look at how unshakable and how extensive the love of God is towards you. You see, the love of God is something that is inescapable. It's something that I cannot get away from. It's something that is there in every moment of every day. It reaches to the heights. It reaches to the depths. I can't get around His love. I can't run far enough away from His love. His love surrounds me continually. And as a believer, I know that His love is is never failing. But let me just explain to you that His love is not just for believers, but it's to humanity as a whole. Paul tells us the demonstration, the proof of His love. And I'm sure you've heard this verse before. But God commendeth His love towards us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, His love is not for the saved. His love is not for the clean cut. His love is not for the holy 
But while you are a sinner, while you may still be a sinner, He loves you with a love that's unfailing. He loves you with a love that's enduring. And I wish somebody would give a, get a revelation of how much Jesus Christ loves you in this place today. He has committed Himself to you. Scripture tells us that He commendeth His love towards us. He proved, He allowed us to comprehend the depth of His love by going to a cross. How do I know Jesus loves me? Because He died for me. How do I know that He cares for me? Because His blood still covers my past. It still covers my sins. He has already proven His love towards me. You see, He didn't just say, I love you. He just didn't say that you're the apple of my eye. He just didn't say that I want to spend uh, the rest of my life with you as it were. No, He demonstrated His love for you and I in the most miraculous of ways, in the most incomprehensible of ways, and that He gave His very life for you and I. And what astounds me about that verse is that He did, did not do it in my best state. <laughs> If you can remember to when you used to date, when you still wanted to make a good impression. You know, now you don't have to make a good impression. You, you're, you're married, you don't have to make a good impression. But those days when you wish you were trying to make a good impression, you know, you would brush your teeth. Hopefully you still do that. You might fix your hair, hopefully you still do that. You, you dress nice to go out on that date. You might spray some cologne. There was one kid in Bible school that he was, roommate, it was a roommate of one of my friends. And he counted the one day and it was 35 squirts of cologne. That's a lot of cologne. It's a little too much. <laughs> 35 squirts of Stetson's a lot. <laughs> but you, that's right. I didn't spray out, that poured out. So you'd cup your hands and throw it all over you. But you try and make a good impression. You wouldn't want them to see you in your worst condition, right? When you just woke up with nasty breath and all this kind of stuff. When you were trying to make a good impression, you wanted to look your best, to be your best, to be on your best behavior, to open the door, to, to, to do all, everything just right. But what amazes me is that Jesus Christ saw me in the worst possible condition. He saw me spiritually with my bad breath and unkept hair and just in the gutter. He saw me in the worst possible state ever. And he looked down, he said, you know what? I know there's a lot of issues. I know there's a lot of faults. I know there's a lot of hurts and pains and a lot of things I'm going to have to work on. But I'm willing to pay the price. I still love them. I still want to give my life for them. That verse tells me that I can't go far enough from Him that His love won't reach. I don't care if you care about God or not. You can't go far enough from Him that His love still won't reach you. You can reject Him. You can turn your back on Him. And His love will still follow you. There are no irreconcilable differences with Him. You can't offend Him in that way. You can't do something that makes Him think, I don't care anymore. Because with God, there is always reconciliation. There, with God, there is always a way back. With God, there's always a way to receive His love. Oh, come on. I, I think we need to thank Him for His love. Come on, if you've experienced the love of Christ, you need to thank Him that He looked down one day and He saw you in your worst state and He still decided to love you. In fact, we only find the present and the future mentioned in that verse, not the past. You see, because what can become people's biggest hang-up with God isn't even an issue with Him. 
Well, what about my past? I don't know if God can save me. I don't know if God can do this. I, don't, I think I've gone too far. You see, He's already seen your past, and that's what He reconciled on the cross. He's just concerned with what you do now with His love, what the future holds in your relationship with Him. Let me ask you this. If God has no problem with your past, why should you? He's seen the very worst, and He still died. Why are you hung up on your past? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12, a little lengthy passage, but it says that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, I know I was far off one day, are made nigh by the blood of Jesus Christ. For He is our peace. While I'm looking for peace everywhere else, Jesus Christ is our peace, who hath made both one, and He's broken down the middle wall of partition between us. He's abolished in His flesh the enmity, even the commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in Himself of twain one new man, so making peace you recognize some language here and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross having slain the enmity thereby and he came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them which were nigh for through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. You see, in these verses, it's the same words. It's the same way that when a man and woman become one flesh, so it is when I turn towards Jesus Christ. He made a way through sin. He made a way through the consequences of sin and the death that I deserved. He made a way through pain, through disappointment, through everything. And He went to the cross. And when He did that, we can become one with Jesus Christ because of that. If you begin to follow the trail of love, of the love of Jesus, you You'll find it leads all the way to a cross. But because of that cross, you will find that there is now access made available to you by His Spirit. And there is access to peace in your life. And God says, I'm willing to join together with you. Just like a natural marriage where one man and one woman come together. So I am willing to become one with you because I love you and I care for you. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 7. The Lord did not set His love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people. For ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because He would keep the oath which He has sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand, and has redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He's telling the Israelites, and I believe it holds true for you and I today, that God did not set His love upon us, nor choose us because of who we are. He did not choose you because of what you offer. He did not look down and say, wow, they have a lot of abilities. They have a lot of talents. But he simply looked down and said, I love them. I love them. And this morning he's looking down and he's not saying, wow, I think I'll take that one because they've got a lot of good things or they've got some money or I could really use them for the kingdom. No, he's looking down this morning and he sees every person and he says, I don't care what your abilities, I don't care what your talents are. I don't how great or how small all you may think you are. Here's the fact of the matter. I just love you today and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to demonstrate my love to you today. I believe that somebody needs to be persuaded of God's love for you today. As the music comes this morning, I believe there's somebody here, maybe you need re-persuaded of God's love for you today. The second way that these verses speak of love 
It's in reference to how, not just how God feels about you. There's no height, there's no depth, there's nothing that can separate us. But the language does not just speak of God's love because God does not have famines. God does not have peril, He does not have swords. The second way speaks of how Paul feels about Christ. The language is very, very compelling. In fact, it says, I am persuaded this morning. That means there's not a shadow of doubt in Paul's mind. First of all, that God loves him, and there's nothing he can do to get away from that love. There's nothing. But the second thing is that Paul is persuaded about how much he loves God. And it causes something to stir in him. And I would challenge this in your marriages as well. You need to be persuaded about your marriage. That there's nothing that's going to separate you. He says famine. He says distress. He says peril. He says all these. He says if an angel from heaven comes and tells me something else, there's nothing that's going to separate me. There's not even anything supernatural, no power, no principality. There's something that stirs in him. A fervency that stirs in him. That makes him declare that I know there's nothing that's going to separate him from me. But there's also nothing that's going to separate me from him. I am persuaded of this thing. I know life's going to bring a lot of things. I know there may be famine. There may be swords. I know there may be all this stuff that comes my way. But this one thing I'm going to hold to is that nothing is going to separate me and my love from Jesus Christ. He is in essence, if you would, in these verses saying, God, I still do. I still do. You see, what has persuaded him is in fact God's love. It wasn't words. It wasn't obligation. Well, I went to an altar a while ago and we're still married. Well, I prayed through one day and I guess I'll just keep coming to church. What else is there to do now? I'm in this thing now. I mean, that's, that's, just, that's pretty easy to do. Just think about this. How many of you, if you decided today, I'm never coming to church again, how many friends would you actually have that aren't in church? There's people that are. But you know what? You create a community. Your friends are here. Your family's here. And that's the way it should be. But you know what? That also breeds comfort. Well, this is, what else am I going to do? This is what I do. No, this wasn't, Paul's not saying this out of obligation. And he's not saying it just because of words. But he has experienced God's love. And he experienced it to such a degree that there was nothing else that he could do except say, I am persuaded. I don't know how people turn from God that have experienced God's love. I don't know how you can sit here today and experience God's love and not be persuaded that this is the most powerful thing that I will ever experience. There is nothing that can rival this. There is no one that could love me more than this. There's nothing that I could find that could do anything greater for me than what the love of Jesus Christ can do in my life. And I believe there's somebody here that needs a revelation like Paul. To be persuaded that God loves you. That God, I know that's about as simple and elementary as it gets. Jesus loves me, this I know. 
but it's easy to forget too, of how much He loves you. And then to be persuaded that because of that love, I'm going to be persuaded in my life. That you know what? There's nothing that's going to turn me from Him. There's nothing that's going to keep me from Him. There's nothing that's going to keep me from His will, from His purpose. I'm going to follow no matter where the path may take. In essence, to say, Lord, I still do. Now, there's a lot of reasons why people have vow renewal. I have to be careful because I saw something one day and they were making fun, not making fun, but they were trying to clarify that they were saying vow and not vowel renewal. So we're not here talking about recommitting to A-E-I-O-U and sometimes why. But a vow renewal. Sometimes people do it because their marriage has come through a rough time. They feel like they need to make a reconsecration of what was once said at an altar. And I would venture to say there's people in their relationship with God just like that. Perhaps it's faltered. Yes, you're still here. And I'm thankful that you're still here. But perhaps it's time for us to renew our vows with God. Say, Lord, I just need to experience your love again. Lord, just let your love sweep over me again. Because I know when I experience his love, I'll be persuaded. And I know that's not a habit that I want to make, that every service I come and Lord, just let me feel your love and I need to be persuaded every, every week. No, that's not what I'm talking about. But there's people in this place that your walk is taking you from God or is leading you away from God. First of all, let me, let me give you comfort in that you can't outrun his love. And his love is here for you today. But it's not just for those people. You see, there's people who've been married 25 years, 50 years. And a lot of times they'll just have a vow renewal ceremony just because they want to. Maybe they never had the wedding they wanted before. Maybe because their kids convince them they need to do it. But it's just a moment. It's not because there's issues. It's not because they're struggling. It's simply because they just want to make a public declaration again of God or to their husband and wife. I still do. It's not because we're about to fall apart. It's not because this is hanging by a thread, but we're just making a public statement. And I don't think it hurts every so often to say, Lord, I still do. It doesn't mean that I'm far from God. It doesn't mean that I'm headed down a dangerous path. But it also doesn't hurt to say, Lord, I just want you to know. Because you know what? He lets me know all the time how much He loves me. It won't hurt for me to say, Lord, I just want you to know that I know you're persuaded. But Lord, I'm still persuaded about this whole thing. Deuteronomy 7.9, I'm closing. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, He is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. You see, while He loves me, no matter what, if I care about Him or not, when I step into that relationship, relationship and say, Lord, I love you, suddenly a covenant is entered into. And Scripture tells me that He is the faithful God. There never comes a point where divorce ever enters God's mind. He's faithful. In fact, it says He'll keep the covenant and mercy with those that love Him to a thousand generations. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5 says it this way, Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For He has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me because I know that he will never leave me 
or forsake me. You see, when I recommit, when I make that commitment to Jesus Christ, when I say, Lord, I know that you love me, but Lord, I'm persuaded also. I have this promise that if he says, I'm yours, and I say, God, you're mine, that he commits to me, that he will never leave me, that he will never forsake me, that he will be faithful to me, that he has covenanted with me, and I become one with him. Colossians 3.3 says, For ye are dead, but when I commit to Him, my life is hid with Christ in God. We're now no longer two separate beings, but we're one. John 15.5 says it this way, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him. The same bringeth forth much fruit. You see, the language was used in Ephesians that now two separate things, God and humanity... Me and God are now suddenly one. God is challenging somebody today to reconfirm that relationship. God is challenging somebody today. Perhaps you've never experienced what it's like to be hid with Christ and God. His love is here for you today. And He's willing to persuade you today with His love as we stand this morning. With the marriage ceremony, usually there's a format that's followed. And in fact, uh, because they can't think of much else, they tell the bride and groom what to say. <laughs> Repeat after me. You can't just let them say whatever. They, uh, I mean, Andy, we heard this morning, isn't, he wasn't even paying attention. He's thinking about the ring and all this stuff going on. I, I have no recollection of what happened during the wedding. I don't know. I don't know. It's a good thing they said, repeat after me. Sometimes, though, people write their own vows, and that's the way this is. You see, because there is no formula that I can offer you. I can't tell you, you know what, you just need to come forward and repeat these words after me. No, you see, he wants you to write your own vows this morning. Whether this is the first time you've ever experienced his love, or whether you're simply coming and saying, Lord, I just want to say, I still do again. He's asking for something from your heart. You see, because it's a little bit different for each person. It's not just some blanket statement that I can make. No, it has to be different for me. What is it that I need to commit to God? What is it that I need to do in my life to demonstrate my love for Him? It may be, Lord, I repent of some things. It may be, Lord, I give you this. But I challenge you this morning. We're going to sing. We're going to have altar call in here in just a minute. But I challenge you. To come to Him this morning and say, Lord, I still do. And I challenge you this morning, if you've never said that, today can be the day when you can experience His love in a new and fresh way. And how do I do that if I've never experienced His love? Scripture tells us it starts with repentance. I simply come before Him and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm no longer going to live life my way, but I want to follow after You. Forgive me this morning. And you know what His love says? I forgive you. That feels like nothing else. I want us to pray right now, Lord Jesus.